welcome back to another episode. Uh, we're doing something a little bit different today. One of one of Matt and I's interests as uh, Austriophiles is oysters. And what we wanted to do was learn a little bit more about the oyster industry. It's not an industry we cover in our, in our professional life other than our boozy lunches. Uh, and that's usually the consumption of them. So we reached out to uh, Zach from Angel Seafood down in sunny Port Lincoln to, to have a bit of a chat about the oyster industry, an industry that is largely forgotten about when it comes to, to agriculture. And it, technically, agriculture, aquaculture, it's all the same thing. Zach, thanks for uh, coming along. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. T tell, tell us a bit... What, Give us a quick intro into, into who you are, Zach. Uh, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, uh, a rough nut. Uh, obviously, I uh, left school pretty early, early in the days. Um, went in, I was, uh, went shearing for a living and, um, yeah, it was uh, something that, you know, was really challenging and, and got the uh, work ethic really moving. Um, and uh, progressed into into sort of farming after that, and um, built up some contracting businesses. And then we um, we had thought we'd uh, buy an oyster farm for a hobby. And um, here we are today with with uh, yeah being being largest now producers in the southern hemisphere. So it's gone uh, from uh, yeah zero to one hundred very very quick, and, um, and it's it's really exciting exciting industry to be in. And, and again, it needs, you know, that really, really good work ethic, and um, and and that's probably what we brought to to our, us building up a scalable business, and and now uh, listed on the ASX. So you've gone from a luxury product of wool to another luxury product of of oysters. So next year, caviar, you know, the year after, luxury handbags. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was quite lucky this year. Uh, Matt wasn't so lucky. And I'm, I'm going I'm to rub this in again, Matt. I think it's the second. Uh, this, this will be the 10th or 11th time I've heard it now. So you go. He actually sent me a picture of the bloody oysters when he was down there. And scoffing in them. I, I was lucky to be in, on, on, in the Air Peninsula uh, doing presentations on, on the grain market back in February in between lockdowns. And I was lucky to... to eat my weight in oysters in Coffin Bay and down in Port Lincoln. Matt was unfortunately unable to do it. But it was interesting, like sitting there in, in Coffin Bay at the is it the Oyster HQ, I think it's called. Yeah, that's a local restaurant there. And, Very and, you, famous. and you could look out and you could see, you know, doing tours and whatnot. And you could see people, you know, see people uh, harvesting the oysters, I guess, is the, is the word, isn't it? So, yeah. So, so the oyster market, yeah. It's it's grown quite a lot in recent years. Obviously, you guys have grown as a business. What what's driving that that growth? In in is it demand? Yeah, well, uh, I don't. It it probably uh, hasn't grown a lot. We've been through some tough times, and the industry uh, has really you know had to really struggle through some some tough times when some disease issues hit our spat supply and stuff like that out of Tassie. So. Um, there used to be around six to seven million sort of dozen a year being sold of Pacific oysters um, nationally. And um, I think South Australia was kind of around, you know, two million, two to, two to three million supply of that. So 
it's a it's a it's a it's a buzzing industry. It used, as we all know, it's the first uh, entree item on any menu, and it's kind of been popular for a for a more restauranty uh, sort of indulgement, uh, if you like, product. Um, uh, but since the tough times, it's sort of of the spat. The industry's kind of bounced back from that. It would have dwindled back down to sort of something two million dozen or something like that being sold. But it's kind of wound back up again now. And um, yeah, we're starting to look at some some really good volumes coming through. And within this industry and through the tough times, everyone's kind of had to find new ways to sell their product. And more so now, especially when COVID hit, and you know every you know, we're building a big business very rapidly and the industry's, you know, getting more and more enthusiasm as well. Um, and then COVID hits and you imagine every restaurant in the world shut down where once was taking 90% of uh, the oyster supply, uh, which were into the food service areas. Um, there's been a lot of diversity around where people have had to go and sell their oysters now, which is, um, you know, credit to a lot of, lot of people and, um, they've done very, very well to sustain their business, and, and they're still employing people. And it's that's um the, that, that's something I was going to ask you about. Just the 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 distribution, I guess, of where our Australian oysters go to. You mentioned about it being heavily geared toward food service. I presume that that's the same both for the domestic market and the export market. But do you know, Zach, a couple of the I guess the rough numbers, like what's produced in Australia, how much stays and consumed domestically and how much goes overseas? And, and is that ratio of you know, most of it going to the food service, ir irrespective of whether it's staying onshore or going offshore, yeah. is it pretty high at 90% level? Uh, it's not. It's interesting. You, wouldn't, you would assume so. Um, it's predominantly, you know, a d domestic market and um, the exports rarely being done uh, with the oysters. Um, our, like Australian industries, 0.05% of um, of the world's production, and China's about 85%. So our main competition is the other 14.5% um, of realistic um, sort of competition out there. Um, being Southern Hemisphere, we we kind of complement the Northern Hemisphere when they're out of season in their summer, we're in our prime in our winter. So we do pick up a fair bit of demand through that period, but it's generally um, a very strong domestic demand for the oysters. So it's been it's been heavily weighed towards domestic product. And with the tough times I was talking about earlier, the domestic prices have jumped dramatically up. Um, and and it's you know we kind of you know sitting sitting here in a in a really good space at the moment with good volumes coming through um and we're we're also you know starting to see that we've got those good prices backing us as well so it's it's a really nice spot to be in um if you take away all the all the noises of covid and the, and the, all that other stuff but do you think with 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 covid fingers crossed we're coming to the end of covid you know and and i guess in, in south australia you've probably not been as impacted by COVID as, as us in Victoria or, or New South Wales now. Do you think people are, like I know from my point of view, we'll probably go on a holiday in Australia this year rather than overseas. There's more money liable to be spent in Australia than you know people going to Bali or going to Europe or whatnot. Do you think people that will mean that people are spending more money in restaurants when they're finally opened? 
and and, yeah, then people, so. and and then people will be will be going for the uh, the oysters as an entree instead of the instead of the patty and toast or whatnot. I think from what we've seen through COVID, just in you know cars and furniture and all that kind of you know pleasure items, you'd say have all been kind of consumed, and people are starting to run out of um, stuff to buy and <laughs> and things to do. So I think when when the restrictions and, and the lockdowns are eased, I think everyone's just itching to get out and about and, you know, do something good for, you know, exciting and, and keep the, cheer themselves up. So there's no doubt that it's probably going to come back pretty strong. Um, and I think the industry is actually primed for it because there's also no doubt that we've been sort of, you know, held back a bit on, on the sales side because of COVID. So, um, yeah, hopefully it goes hand in hand and, and you know, the industry's not you know too too kind of uh, desperate to drop prices and stuff like that. I think it's uh, we've done well to hold our prices up through these times, and I think that we'll see a, a great comeback in people going out and enjoying the product. So Zach, Zach, you, you'll be dealing with a lot of restaurants and stuff here directly sometimes as a, as a company. Um, what what's the sort of attitude from how, how how are restaurants feeling at the moment because we matt and i we went out you know back in i remember that lockdown in oh, july yeah. we, we yeah. went out for we went out for a, we were going out to dinner and it was on the night of the lockdown being announced and we went out to like a couple of pre-drinks you know warm-up session and and they and there's a little little restaurant in melbourne quite nice little bar and they'd bought in a whole bunch of oysters uh, but obviously they were going to lockdown for a week at that point and you could you could sort of feel that and my, my cousin's got a got a restaurant in Perth and you sort of you know you sort of think it must be difficult for a lot of restaurants especially in in New South Wales and, and Victoria you know is is the attitude improving or is it just doom and gloom at the moment for a lot of restaurants uh, it's mixed mixed emotions a lot of restaurants that have been around for a long long time that that are probably, um, you know, being very reputable, have obviously sustained business through Uber Eats and yeah. all kinds of different vehicles now that they use to, to sell their product. But, um, and then we also get the other hand where, you, you know, the government subsidies and stuff like that have been now stopped and, on, on, and that's probably hurting a few other businesses. So it's, it's kind of a mixed bag at the moment. Uh, between uh, a 33-33 split and then there's obviously the other 33 that have just closed their doors. So um, when that actually happened, we we actually pivoted into the retail space um, purely because we we had a really good relationship there and we used to sort of supply smaller amounts, but we've been growing our business year on year to sort of get to the stage where we're at. We've, we've got national respect and, and relationships now through distribution of uh into the retail space so that's helped us along and helped us build our business and continue and will continue to help build our business um it's been you know really rewarding we've got a really good team behind us and to see us not have to you know lay any staff off in fact we're hiring consistently um the teamwork that goes around getting this product we do we are very reputable. Um, we do sell a really good quality product and it is into most of our high-end restaurants, which is good and they've sustained their business. So it's been like a really good um, 
been a, it hasn't been a too bad a space for us. There's no doubt that we've lost, you know, percentage of sales because of, you know, the, the other 60, 66% that are probably not buying as much anymore. But the retail, the retail side's definitely lifting us through through these periods. I think, I think, so, if, I think if an industry can survive COVID, they can survive anything. It's really. true. Especially a um, food, uh, uh, an a product that goes into the consumer food services. Yeah. Zach, you mentioned, but we're going to get onto the production side in, in a second because um, Angel Seafood is, is um, specific in the sense that you're organic and one of the few that are just like that, got those sustainable credentials in Australia. But um, just before we move away from that, I guess, global space and, and that export, you'd mentioned about China being the big producer globally. Um, are they are they equally the big kind of global consumer? Do they kind of take all what they produce plus imports as well, or are there other like from? I know you're saying that the strain focus is, is predominantly domestic at the moment, but that to me would would mean that there's also a lot of opportunity for growth outside of the domestic market if if we could if the industry grows you know in here and have is it is there barriers or limitations around? It becoming more of an export focus, or is it? You know, is it just that China dominates both the consumption and the production, or how does it all play out? Yeah, well, it does both. Um, it's it's a it's a tough question that one. There's a few. There's a few. Uh, obviously, there is some really nice areas in China that does grow a good product, but ninety percent of it or eighty percent of their product that that they produce is normally cooked, and it's cooked down for oyster sauce and all those kinds of things ah, yeah. um entry into china <clears throat> is really hard and obviously we've now got you know that kind of difficulty um with the relationship now uh that boiled over through covid um so that's that's put some um barrier entry sort of uh you know it's put some restrictions in for us to get the product into there now as well so but they never were really predominantly a big buyer of the oysters. We we supply most Southeast Asia, and our biggest competition into those areas are uh, the States and France and um, a lot of those other areas that um, that, that are growing a premium product as well. So we don't we don't see them too much as competition. And you know, I don't think we'd if they were on trying to buy our supplier, there's no way we'd be able to keep up with the supply anyway. Being 0.05% of the supply. So it's just, yeah, we do get a lot of interest from China, but they're, they're generally wondering if, uh, you know, they're, they're interested in the whole industry, not not just mm. one supplier. And it sounds like they're different market segments to a degree. If you've got that, that bulk product that's kind of going into, like you said, the oyster sauce mainly, you know, as rather than a fresh product that's, that's going into the dining, you know, take a you know a dining setting or, or food service setting yeah yeah right yeah cool um so this job into production yeah that's exactly what i was going to go next so because i know you know being a livestock analyst here in the job i do we're always looking at kind of things like uh and, and, and pig farmers ourselves and pig farmers too. We're, <laughs> we're, we're kind of uh, well it's when you're saying about a hobby a hobby getting into uh oyster farming is a hobby that's become your um your career now and I was just thinking Andrew with um, the pig farm kind of starts to take over from what we're doing in our day-to-day <laughs> job because it certainly feels like it at present um, but um, yeah just getting back to that production side when you when you look at things like feed conversion ratios for land animals obviously cattle have got um, you know they're quite up there with the amount of inputs to to produce a, a kilo of beef and as you go down to, to pigs and chickens they're reasonably efficient feeders 
uh, you know, for, for leaguered creatures. Um, but they don't really stack up to, uh, I know that I think salmon, farm salmon is almost a, nearly a one-for-one one ratio, I think, is feed conversion. What's the story with oysters, mate? Are they, uh, are they net positive yeah. filter feeders or how does that work? Yeah, well, the, it's hard to tell. It's, it's generally feast or fathom with the oysters because they're, they're naturally fed. We don't feed them anything. They're, they're, they're feeding on uh, either ecosystems within the bay or they're feeding from plankton that's being brought in from upwellings. Um, so there's a whole range of different food sources that come through for them. So, it, it, you know, we've, we see the same as a normal land farmer, of you know, droughts and, and, and wet, wet years. So we have also the seasons do different things for the, for the product, the tides, the moon. Um, we're reliant on uh, a lot of the Lewin current as well. Uh, we're reliant on the La Nina and El Nino events too. So it's, it's, it's very much farming like any business and there's, you know, there's always risk there, but the big, the biggie for me and what, you know, really excited me about all this is, and, and also, you know, being organic and sustainable um, certified is that we don't feed any of the product and it's very, very sustainable. We, we buy, and we buy the seed from the hatchery and, you know, it just, it's just a really, really easy product to grow. And, you know, you, you we, we then determine on how fast we get that product from spat to plate um, on generally on the conditions of the years that we get with food source and stuff like that. So it's, I know they filter a lot of water and they are very, very greedy. Uh, they have a huge metabolism and it also with a huge metabolism also can make them very vulnerable when there's no food source around. What's the, like when we know, like it, it, with, with, with pigs, it's, it's quite predictable you know, how long it takes from piglet to to going to a better place. Uh, it's quite predictable. How long roughly does it take to make the standard sized oyster on, on, on an average? On average, you, you see South Australia can generally do it in 18 months to two years. And, and Tasmania, the water's a bit cooler there. They're looking at around two years to maybe... To, to maybe two and a half, even even three at some times. But, um, yeah, it's it's not – you've got to handle the product. I actually, um, from my background, to give the farmers out there some kind of um, uh, insight on how we work the product, it's actually like the shell to me is like wool on a sheep and the meat inside is like, like obviously the meat on the sheep. So – for years, we, you know, we'd always be shearing sheep uh, a month before sheep were going to market because they were in their best condition. And, you know, they're, now they're putting all their energy in the meat. They're not putting it into the wool and so on and so on. So it's it was kind of similar like that, um, but with our multi-bay model. So we grow in four different bays here in South Australia and we utilise those bays each differently uh, and we actually sort of use them as tools not so much as what uh, featuring the bay itself we're just looking at food source seasonality and growth rates between those seasons that we know of and, and we've and we've uh, mapped over the last 12 years so we just get we just put the product into those bays and, and believe it or not each bay grows differently at different times of the years and so they, they have their peaks and lows um, completely opposite at some point, some time. So it's really 
and excitement for us. So to get an oyster going into one bay, doing what it does best, and then we ship it out of that bay into another bay. And again, you know, getting optimum growth again. Uh, and then after that, shipping it to another bay to, to do the finishing side of it, to get the quickest finishing. So we've got a lot of tools in our system that work better for us. Um, and this is a business that, you know, we need to have those kinds of tools because we, the scale we've gotten to now, we need continuity of supply and, and being, uh, being reputable in those big markets, you need day in, day out sales. Um, we can't afford not to be in those markets. So, yeah, it's, it's a... And, and that reduces risk by having a bit of a geographic spread as well. It does. <laughs> what, so, so it takes 18 months to produce a normal size one that you get in a restaurant in Melbourne, yeah? Yeah. So I went to Port Lincoln Hotel uh, a couple of years ago, and they've got these big ones, king oysters or something, yeah? About the size of a steak or something, yeah? Yeah. How long do they take to make? Yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be five, over five years old, I would have thought. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just a bit of a novelty, I reckon. Do they, and what do they taste like? Uh, would be just similar, very meaty, obviously, as you could imagine. But um, yeah, you need a knife and fork to get through it. Um, not my favourite oyster. Actually, the smaller the oysters for me are, are the better. They seem to be a lot sweeter, and the meat to shell ratio seems to be a lot higher. So yeah, they're they're to me the, the best. So so when like at the moment you're you're in Port Lincoln, yeah. So yep. obviously most of the restaurants in the country, Melbourne, Sydney, like that's just just that's where the population is how do you get oysters there because they go live don't they yeah they travel live we get about eight to nine days from harvest um in their in their loss so we we ship live everywhere um they go to a dc in each state and uh, then the oysters will sort of be sitting in their chilling uh room ready for process um so we supply a lot of wholesale as well and that that product will then get it's uh, processed in there, which obviously being shucked and into trays and then out to restaurants or even even we're using those guys to do our retail stuff as well. So, so, do, so do they, when, they're, when they're shipped, you'll put them in like an IBC or something with food? Uh, no, they're all shipped in um, Hessian bags, like the old wheat bags uh, oh, okay. there, and they're all on pallets and off they go that way. And um, believe it or not, because they are a living animal, they actually like to be they like to breathe a bit so that passion bag one gives them you know a bit of air around them and secondly it's it's uh very good for the cold chain uh of the product as it travels through as well and so um you'd mentioned that with with covid uh zach you the business itself kind of pivoted a bit to i guess you'd call it what direct sales as well is that part of this halo club it's called i think um yeah we 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 did develop the Halo Club uh, purely for uh, it's 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 very high end and it's more for the oyster connoisseur uh, that's really into product. And through these lockdowns, we were getting a lot of people just requesting. You know, we just love that product. And we really want to you know get our oysters each each month and at least you know celebrate you know once a month with our family um, in these lockdowns. So we. We developed the Halo Club purely for the experience. And what I say always to connoisseurs, you've got to shuck it yourself. So you've got to be in the moment and do it all. And um, funnily enough, we're getting the best response ever from them doing it themselves. And 
the freshness because they're actually getting the product. They're shucking it themselves. Um, they're not getting. They're not rinsing the oyster under a tap like ninety nine point nine percent of the processed oysters would be. So you you're not losing any of that ocean flavour, and it's just you know it's it's a really good experience for them. And through these through lockdown, it's you know proved to work really well. We are actually developing though a more of a uh, not so luxury side of experience, so they can be they can rock up sharked and you know more for for the uh, for the for the maybe the, the younger millennials that just want to have you know a few beers and a and a few oysters before they go out for dinner or something like that. So we we're coming up with a few different ranges and and it's like I said at the at the start there the the way that people of the farmers the industry here that have just you know diversified their the way that they they sell the products really amazing it's really lifted the spirits in the industry as well. So it's good. What <laughs> I've got, I've got a quick question, and this is this is they might be able to answer this or not. Did oysters used to be a peasant food, or is that yeah, a rumor? Is, in, in Scotland? No, they, they were, did. were they? Did they, yeah, they were everywhere because they just grew on the rocks everywhere, and you just go around and and, and pick them and, and eat them. Um, but they're very good for the actual ecosystem within the sea, so they, they play a really good part, and that's what inspired us to be, you know, really targeting that organic and sustainable um, route because of the the features that. You know we can we can sort of do having those uh, uh, attributes to the product. I would have so, thought. I would say, and you, on the on the website, you've got yourself listed as uh, Angel Seafood as the only organic certified oyster producer in Australia. Is that right? Uh, well, we were the, we were at the time. There's another couple that have followed suit now, so we will have to uh, edit that out a bit now. But um, <laughs> you can, yeah, you can always uh, say we were the trendsetter. Yeah. <laughs> I would have thought well, I, 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 I just think it's good like others that get on get on it just you know it's, it's good for the it's good for the image and it's um uh and we're actually going you know we're continuing that through our production we're putting you know floating farms in rather than having all the you know all the thousand odd you know sticks in the seabed uh we're just continuing on this sustainable trend and uh, it's proven to be really you know unique and um, I think it's actually, you know, if we're harvesting from the area, we need to obviously making sure we, we do it in the best best possible way. Um, and and then, you know, you, we don't feel guilty about, um, you know, making a profit from something that's, you know, we, we're getting for nothing kind of thing. What would be what would be the differences between uh, a company like yourself that's, that's organic and, a, and an oyster farm that's non-organic? Like, what are the kind of practices or are there a couple of key practices they would do that you guys don't do? Yeah, there's, I mean, I think you could probably claim that most of the, the oysters around are, are probably organic just because they're kind of, you know, grown in the, in the ocean and it's sort of, they're being ocean fed. And, and that also screams, you know, where we are, it's absolutely, you know, a no-brainer. And it probably sounds silly to, to some people, but the environment we have here is just so pristine if you look at some of the other areas where the product's grown, it's, it's, it's bloody. looks like, you know, the Murray River water. You know, you just think, how the hell would I want to eat a filter feeder coming from those areas? Mm. But what we do different is, you know, we don't have any treated pine posts and like CCA and, and stuff like that going into the into the sea. We have full 100% traceability from spat to plate, um, which is a, an absolute requirement. We, we, on our sustainable, you know, uh, audits they're very rigorous we get 
you know, they're focused on, you know, our power usage, our water usage, our labour, um, and and all, all kinds of things. So they're really, it's a broad, rigorous audit that, you know, just making sure we're doing our, our part to make sure that the not only the business, but the, the product at the end is, is just really does its bit to, to make sure we're sustainable. You, you, meant, you mentioned labour there. And, and one of the things that we're finding in the farming industry is there's been a reliance on the past for backpackers. We don't have that, or, or seasonal workers from the islands. And it's a big struggle to get that. Is, is there many, in, in that sort of oyster industry, is there much backpacker labor used for harvesting or yeah, we're, labor? We're very reliant on on uh, casuals and and backpackers made up most of them. Um, so we'd be thirty percent probably casuals that we'd have. So we we're down that thirty percent labor force, and on top of that, we're growing a business year on year uh, at an incredible rate that uh, is continuing to be problematic about getting staff. We we're actually getting people that. That are applied for the job, but there's it's just really hard to you know get local people here that to come in and, and just help with that labour force. Um, so yeah, it, it is it does hurt, um, and this is where you know a lot of the practices that we are doing is all about you know building um, automation and you know getting our economies of scale trying to work for us rather than being so reliant on on the labour uh, itself and you know our full-time employee rate will just continue growing there's no doubt but we want to try and you know get away from having to be relying on, on casual kind of uh, loading that we seem to get all the time so we've already kind of started building that automation and and systemizing into our business and and we have been doing it for the last couple of years um so we it's you know it won't be as big a problem for us down the track but um yeah at the present it's um yeah it's very real you mentioned as well just production side uh, zach I, I think one stage there you said whether it's a wet season um you know whether that kind of impacts upon you know how quickly the oysters are growing or how much you know how much success you're getting i guess across the board so Am I reading it right in the sense that, like on land, where we get you know the the shift from El Nino to La, La Nina and the weather patterns associated with that, that they would have implications, I guess, for the ocean currents and and whether there's a lot more food in the in the in in the current or whatever. Is that is that what you're referring to? Do you guys see yeah. a pattern where where one of those climatic cycles are better for you from a production perspective or or, or not? We it depends, like. I know we um, we relied on on so much of the, the way the the El Nino and La Nina works, but there's some benefits and some losses on both sides of them. So they tend to weigh each other up. But what what is probably not um, probably what worries us the most. So for instance, a La Nina event has has come through this season. We got hardly any you know, hot weather over the summer that would normally would see high mortality rates for our young stock. This year we had, you know, extremely good survivability, Um, but the current was out a bit deep. The the food was out too deep this year and we didn't quite get the food source in that we we sort of normally get with an El Nino. So there's all those kinds of things that play a part. 
you know, in drought years, we normally get a lot of summer rain, which helps us with, you know, food nutrient and coming into the bays and uh, feeding a lot of our product it's in certain bays. And then, you know, the upwellings coming through uh, from the Great Australian Bight, it depends on what levels of waters underneath um, the seabed that's going to come up and all kinds of different things in summer and winters. And yeah, it's just this year's, every year seems to be just different and it's different on those El Nino and La Nina events. Which, which is pretty much the same as cropping, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a different, different year every year. Yeah. But it, we, we've got a lot of data back. Like we've, we've, we collect, or one, that's one huge bonus we did with 100% traceability um, seven years ago when we implemented it, we've got seven years of now just year on year, season on season data that's just showing us, you know, what what years are doing this and what weather events are doing that and our growth rates of, and, and survivability and all those things have, you know, played, you know, a really good um, part in now us being able to analyse that data. So, so you guys are taking all the data from everything that you could do to order to make better decisions. So you yeah. can you can basically sort of start to adapt things to the environment. Would that be right? Eventually, that's where we we well, you, there's so many variables. Mm. We we just want to get to a point where we can draw draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we'll take this much of a hit here because we know that's the that's the that's where the line in the sand is. So we can exactly that point. We can make the right decision moving forward on the basis of this data that we've got prehistoric. Okay. That's interesting, and that's what we're seeing in agriculture. The more more data you collect in, in in a cropping operation, you know, whether it's protein levels in the paddock, you know, then you can apply, you know, variable rate fertilizer or whatnot. And, yeah, and, well, and I guess it's, it's, it's coming it's, from that farming background is probably what's uh, what's inspired us to kind of you know do that and the automation and so on and so on. It it is it is very much uh, we our industries. It's probably worth noting that, you know, we're only about 30, 38 years old, the industry here in South right. Australia. So it's quite um, young. Um, and as for ag, you know, it's like hundreds of years old. So the automation and the so on and so on just hasn't really been developed yet. And and another big point is that because we're so small in the, in the world's production, we we are very reliant on labour, whereas the other, the other countries aren't. They, they, you know, they get all sorts of cheap labour in. We don't have that luxury, but we do have, you know, we, so we're adapting all of our infrastructure on the farms and systems we implement and starting to bring automation to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us now. Um, and once we see this evolve, it's going to, you know, reinvigorate a lot of the industry here and, and allow businesses like us to scale up to, to you know, a really good sustainable level that's going to be um, obviously reaping the benefits of that economies of scale. How do you, um, with regards to the staff, you mentioned about, you know, the previous reliance on backpacks and stuff, but I'm just wondering too, and, and coming from your background, Zach, where you started out as a, as a shearer originally in, in the, on, on the land, um, how do you go about, or how does, a, how does a staff member or a person interested in the industry go about learning about the industry? Is most of it on the job type training or are there actual courses that you can do 
I know, like for Andrew and I, we run a pig farm and I know there's kind of animal husbandry type courses relating to pigs that can be done as a certificate type course. But, you know, do you have particular ones that are geared around the oyster industry or is there aquaculture type courses that you, you know, is that the type of stuff people do beforehand or do they learn, you know, they come in, they stumble into an industry and then find they really like it and, and pick up as they go? Yeah, well, we, we normally would just get a lot of, um, you know, people of you know just passing through the town looking for a job and they'd end up you know because I would, their desire was to work that that'd be really good and that because it's so labor intensive and you know others, being an owner operator you were there to be able to just uh make micromanage everyone um but now that, that there is courses around aquaculture courses there's you know marine biologists that sort of we start to get interest from and all the likes they weren't really of much interest to us before, but now there's um, we've grown scale. We've got 50, you know, full-time staff now, um, and we want to make sure that these guys are coming for a career now rather than a job, um, because of you know what the sustainability kind of concept has taught us is that we need obviously succession planning coming all the way through. So we offer a fair bit of the the, the traineeship courses part of the job and the package that they get. Um, and we are seeing, you know, we are actually starting to see a lot of people come from, you know, those marine universities out of Tassie and so on actually applying for work here, which is great. So it, there is a bit of gear there, but the variables in the working with mother nature and the ocean, as you guys probably well know, the, there's so many variables there that you, you sort of have to be, you know, really on the spot each time making some decisions. and having those leaders in place that uh, that can make those decisions for us is very important too. So we do, you know, train all the way through to the end. So, so, so the, the, the Christmas party would be a good function to attend as well with um, access to all these oysters too. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't get too many uh, outside of work uh, staff uh, deny the, um, the Christmas uh, party invite, that's for sure. Um, and we are pretty uh, hard workers, so we don't mind the odd uh, frothy or two to go down with the, with the oysters. So it's a, always a good show. Everyone's pretty uh, pretty keen to get there, for sure. So, so Zach, we, we've taken up quite a lot of your time already this afternoon. You, you probably need to get out on the boat and get your get your get your sea legs back on. But just just to summarise, like basically, like oyster farming is not really any different to land-based farming, really. You got no, very, exactly right. Very yeah. similar challenges, um, although there's not much risk of sharks when you're when you're when you're farming uh, crops. <laughs> but but the but it is it is very similar. It's, it's a similar sort of there's the seasonality. I don't think there would be any seasonality. I reckon there's a, there's a few sharks in the grand industry, mate, from what I can tell. Oh, there's quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think I think they're actually rats in the industry, but. Uh, <laughs> But the but the reality is that it is it is seasonal. And I didn't realise there was a there was a sort of a, a seasonal element to it. I assumed that you just plonk them in. And yeah, they, I mean and, a, and a lot grow. of people a lot of people actually just thought we work, you know, two seasons of the year or something. And it's just it's just not the case. It's 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 it is uh flat to the board twelve months of the year. Yeah. So yeah, they, they don't and, uh the oysters don't stop growing and the tides don't stop moving just because of COVID or anything else like that. We're, uh, she's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty busy. 
So what we'll do, Zach, is we'll we'll leave that with you. But thanks for thanks for coming along. What we, what Matt, Matt and I will promise that we'll do for you is that we'll continue to support the oyster industry <laughs> a, a dozen a dozen oysters at a time. And uh, look, when 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 we come out of lockdowns and whatnot then uh, we will we will be back on it and we'll be supporting both the uh, South Australian wine industry and the uh, the South Australian oyster industry uh, as, yeah, well, as, I think as much put, as we can. I think, yeah, I, I do appreciate that um, very much, but I do think we're uplifting your bacon when you're uh, putting it on top of the oysters a bit as well. So there's a bit of a, uh, we're sharing the load there for sure. Yeah, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to do a bit, do, do, do a bit for the industry. So, so Zach, if thanks, thanks for, thanks for coming along. Really appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, it looks like it's a beautiful day on the balcony in Port Lincoln, and uh, yeah, we really, really appreciate it. It's, it's This is what we're aiming to do with the podcast: is is learn about both for Matt and myself is learn about new industries and, and new ideas and new 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 thoughts, and, and hopefully hopefully the people listening uh, get a bit of new insights as well. So, so thanks for coming along. Yeah, it's been good, been good chatting. Uh, very insightful for us. And uh, like Andrew said, an area we haven't ever really focused in on in our, in our normal kind of lives other than when we're out for lunch. But um, it's been great. Thanks for chatting and um, see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now.